back to the books. A dusty, ancient tome that we have once again opened, <laughs> levered open, brushed off the cobwebs, stamped out the spiders. We haven't stamped out the spiders. We don't kill spiders. We've lowered the spiders gently out the window to die outside. <laughs> <laughs> we have Indiana Jones this we have, temple, to put it we've, lightly. We've quickly... We've quickly grabbed the jewel and put something on instead and we're running away yeah. past the... There's a giant boulder literally seconds behind us. So if we do sound quite uh, rushed this afternoon, then yeah, you know why. Yeah, I was actually having some rumbling sound problems with my mic, so we'll pretend it was that. Anyway, yes, so we're back after a very long, mostly accidental hiatus. We just got really busy. Um, and I am here, as always, joined by my lovely co-host, Kieran. Hello! Hello, Isabel. How long has it actually been? I think... It was the women's prize was the last time we got together for this. I yeah, think. yeah, I think so. So when was that? April, May, around then? Wow. Either way, it's it's been a while. Yeah, it was it was light at seven o'clock, I think, when we when we did that. So <laughs> Oh, sad. <laughs> yeah, now now it's nighttime at four. Anyway, yes, so after a bit of a break. We're back. We're going to do a couple more episodes, hopefully before the end of the year, and then we'll just see what the new year brings. Um, this time, we thought we would bring you um, some kind of cosy, cold weather faves of each of ours. I think we've got three each, um, and we're just going to go back and forth. And we're basically going to give you some recommendations for books to kind of curl up with and enjoy as the nights draw in and everything gets cold and disgusting and wet. And you have no money because it's Christmas. <laughs> what more could you want in this gorgeous time of year? It yeah, is the season yeah. and everything. Yeah, sit, sink into a few books and pretend it's not happening. Um, gorgeous. So did you want to maybe go first, Kieran? And then we'll literally just go back and forth. And We, yeah. yes. So I'm going to kick off with a book I read in the summer, um, which you could still argue is a summer read. But again, you can read it whenever. This is a book by Sarah Winman, famous author of When God Was a Rabbit and Tin Man. And uh, this is a book called Still Life, which was released this summer. This is a big hearted story about people living together from 1944 onwards. Um, we start off in a ruined wine cellar in a Tuscan villa. Bombs are falling around. Um, it's a very dangerous, tense place to be. We meet two people. Ulysses Temp is a young British soldier and Evelyn Skinner, who is a art historian and possible spy, we don't know. They are both in Italy for very different reasons. He's fighting. She is there to be like an ally and a, you know, a possible kind of aid and maybe a spy, we don't know. Um, but we start the novel and she's talking about the time she met Ian e. Forster and how she had her heart stolen by an Italian maid in Florence. She's very forthcoming with her queerness and it's really refreshing to read. Um, and she meets Ulysses and they hit it off really well. Again, it's not a romantic relationship. It's more of a platonic one of two people that just understand each other and get each other. So they part their separate ways and the book then follows the next 40 years and it becomes almost like a um, will they, won't they see each other again? And there's funny little instances where one of them's in Florence and one of them is heading back on a train and as their train leaves, another one pulls in so they just miss each other. Oh. And that's it in terms of plot because it's more about these characters and the lives they lead 
in and outside of each other. So we go from London back to Italy, all around. And it's a character-driven novel, but it's also like a love letter to Italy, to art, because obviously Evelyn is an art historian. And there's lots of references to Ian Forster there, which isn't a boring thing at all. It's quite a funny, tongue-in-cheek love letter to him. And it's one of those things where, for me, when I read it, it was very visceral. I could feel like the heat of that Italian sun. I could almost smell the espressos the characters were drinking. There's a parrot called Claude in it who's brilliant. And you could almost hear him squawking in the background. And because you follow these characters over the space of 40 years, it reminded me, not in a harrowing sense, but in the way of a little life where you're with these characters for such a long established time that when you reach the end of the book, you find it really hard to let go. And this is about 400 pages, so not the shortest book, not the longest book, but it's really something special because it just worms its way into your heart and you feel so acquainted with these characters and you want them to see each other again. And it's not even in that classic, will they, won't they get together, because it's very much established from the onset that that's not what this is. They've got very separate lives. Evelyn talks about all the famous women in her past that she nearly had it away with, but then just quite uh, slipped from the net. Um, but there's this level of understanding and just platonic friendship, which I don't think is really explored a lot in books. It is very much, it's a romantic established relationship, or it's kind of people that don't get on, they're very much opposites, and then, oh, look, surprise, they get together at the end. Um, this was so different to that, and just so refreshing. Yeah. And the E.M. Forster references were something, at first, I thought was a bit too on the nose, um, because it's very much a dedication to him, and there's lots of scenes in the book where it feels very much ripped out of A Room With A View, for example, which is a book... I read the first time and I did not like it. And then I reread it and I loved it for some reason. Um, great film with Helena Bonham Carter, by the way. And this is, and that kind of made me fall in love with it even more. It's almost like a saga. And I don't know, I'm just a sucker for themes of like fate and yeah. <laughs> things sort of set in motion and mediations on love and... It made me feel, and because I read it in the real roaring hot summer days that we had at the end of July, I think it really helped that. And it's not like, oh, you can't read it because it's winter. I think it'll bring like the warmth in. So when you're tucked up in bed reading it and you're looking at the, the cold, dark evenings outside, you can really transport yourself away to Italy and pretend you're on that train or you're drinking an espresso in a courtyard and there's a parrot squawking behind you. It's something really, really special. And I know we both are a fan because... Uh, have you read Tin Man yet? Because I read it when I came to see you in York and you'd bought a really fancy edition. T Tin Man continues to sit on my shelf looking at me uh -huh. going, is okay. it the right time yet? And I go, maybe. But what I'm actually going to do is sit on my phone and ignore you. Um, uh. So we'll, we'll get there, I promise. But yeah, I, I, I do really like that. So all of the books that I've chosen are very stereotypical cold weather genres and I really like that you've picked a blisteringly hot kind of classic yes. summer read um, yes. as something to read in the winter because I think you're right I think particularly at the really bitter times of year reading something really warm rather than making you feel like you're missing out can actually kind of help emulate that feeling of kind of 
uh, life and vitality and, and yeah, oh, hotness. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I kind of thought with, you said comfort reads. Yeah. And it was one of the first things that came to my mind because I felt comforted by it. And it was a book where I just wanted to get right back in it. Almost like when you're on holiday and you just want to immerse yourself in the landscape of it all and really treasure it. That's what I got from it. And maybe some people might struggle with the fact that it's not very plot centric and it's very much snippets of these characters living their lives. You know, you find out some have escaped from London um, and they want higher aspirations for themselves. Evelyn kind of moves back and forth, but it works really well. It flows really well. Admittedly, when I first read maybe the first 50 pages, I wasn't sure and I nearly very much put it down, but I'm so glad that I stuck with it. And it's definitely stayed with me as well. And it's definitely a book that I would heartily recommend for these cold winter evenings where we are all freezing. Um, especially because it focuses on those moments that just make you make you smile and kind of celebrates the idea of like, we're just seizing the day, I guess with lockdown and everything that's going on outside, those small moments maybe mean the most. And that's why I resonated a lot with it. Yeah, so that's it, my first recommendation. Still Life by Sarah Winman. Go, 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 go read. Including you, Isabel. Oh, okay. <laughs> and another thing just to add to the list of why you should read it, it's a very pretty book. It looks gorgeous. And there's some lovely end papers and spreadges on that. So go check it out. Spreadges. Spreadges. Lovely, lovely. word. Spreadges. So what is your first cosy read recommendation? So, I love how for cosy you chose stuff that kind of really warms you inside. Things that kind of have, have echoes of warm weather and, and comforting moments. Uh, my thing for cosy reads is mostly by people who are dead. Um, Hooray! So, yeah, so I have obviously gone with my baby girl, Jane Austen, and I've picked Northanger Abbey. Ah, um, one of my newer favourites. Thank you yes. to your recommendation. Me for basically ha- hamstringing you into reading it under pain of under pain of pain of death. You know, yeah, yeah, you were going to say death. Just say it. Come on now. I was going to say pain of pain because I was like, well, pain of death sounds really extreme. What if I just sort of, you know, striped you or something? And then I realised that pain of pain is not I challenge a you to a duel, sir. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, it's funny actually because I, for me, Jane Austen is like a springtime author. You know, if I think about um, the other ones that I've read, uh, Emma, um, Persuasion particularly, Pride and Prejudice, all that. They are very much, um, they, they make me think of beautiful spring days, like a, like mm. end of spring, the blossom is still around, it's warm, you're in a park. Uh, that's very much my Jane Austen vibes, aside from Northanger Abbey, which I think is the most perfect, cold, cosy, curl up with a blanket and hot chocolate read. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I present to you the only wintry Austen. And Northanger Abbey, we, we have discussed this on a podcast about the Gothic, which you're welcome to go and um, listen to. I'm not going to bang on too much about it. But um, this follows Catherine Morland, who is this country bumpkin, naive, adorable, basically gets most of her life lessons and her understanding of the world from uh, Gothic novels. And she is finally introduced into society um, by, by her kind of um, more cosmopolitan relatives. And so, yeah, she meets Henry Tilney, who is this like, gorgeous, wildly, very rich man. He has a lovely sister um, and they hit it off immediately because Henry Tilney also loves gothic novels. And so in the course of them sort of coming to know each other, Henry invites Catherine to come and stay with him at his home, Northanger Abbey. 
and Northanger Abbey is a creepy, creaky old house. Um, it's got an intimidating master of the house. Henry's father is this kind of big, imposing, quite scary man. Henry's mother died a long time ago, um, and that they're a little bit kind of reticent to talk about kind of what happened to her. And because she is uh, born and bred on Gothic novels, Catherine gets it into her head that maybe, just maybe, General Tilney, Henry's father, killed Henry's mother. <gasps> gasp. Le gasp. J'accuse. And so she basically sets about trying to explore through these kind of the dark, mysterious hallways of Northanger Abbey, trying to find out, find clues, find out what really happened. My favourite bit, and I think you know which is, this is, yes. is when she's in that mindset of, I'm going to find clues, I'm going to find something. <gasps> what is this? Oh my goodness, it's a letter. It's going to have all the secrets that I need to expose this. And it's a, like a laundry list or something like that. Yeah. It's so perfect and so funny. Yes. Exactly, yeah. It, it's That's the thing, but this is obviously quintessential gothic tropes played for laughs because the reality is that there is no big evil secret lurking in the dark um you know catherine uh, like you said catherine follows these kind of gothic clues only to find like, really mundane stuff at the end yes and obviously this is played for laughs isn't catherine silly uh, henry tilney towards the end finds out what she's doing and has this kind of long monologue where he talks about how um it's kind of silly and juvenile for Catherine to think that she's in a gothic novel. However, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, the gothic is always, always, always about power structures. And in Jane Austen's version, as for many of the versions written at that time, the, uh, the power structure that it is talking about is patriarchy. So while Jane Austen is kind of poking fun at the gothic, for being kind of outlandish and silly. She at the same time has Catherine come to the actual real conclusion that most Gothic novels allude to. Henry Tony's father never killed his mother, but the kind of oppressive house and the difficult marriage and the fact that, you know, General Tilney is such an unpleasant man, basically sent Mummy Tilney to an early grave. He might as well have murdered her. Mm. And so in kind of sending up um, in, in sending up the Gothic, Jane Austen actually ends up writing this kind of really quite beautiful love letter to the Gothic and what it achieves. Well, that's what they say, isn't it? Like, when you mock or sort of parody something, it's done from a place of love and you're kind of honouring it in a way. You're not ripping yeah, it to exactly. shreds. You're poking fun yeah. at it because you love it. Yeah, it's basically, I, I like to call it the hot fuzz of Gothic yes. novels. <laughs> I remember I remember this in the Gothic episode. Yeah. Great analogy. Yeah, so... For me, this is just a gorgeous novel. It's 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 got all of that wintry feeling because mm. of all these gothic vibes, but at the same time, um, the way Jane Austen plays it, it is so cute and it's adorable. And Catherine Morden, I think, is one of Austen's most likable characters. I think she's the one that you'd want to hang out with the most. You know, if you think about, you know, Emma's kind of mean. Um, yeah, Anne's a bit too perfect. Lizzie would probably bully you. Yeah, she really would. Yeah, whereas Catherine's just like an absolute sweetie pie and I, I would definitely want to hang out with her. And Henry Tilney, I think, is one of the better men that people end up with. You know, I mm. think people people always think of Jane Austen as a romantic novelist. She's not. She writes marriage plots, which are different. Um, you know, the, the, 
the general crux of each of her novels isn't necessarily somebody finding the love of their life. It's somebody finding a way in which they can be, you know, financially stable with a husband who won't hit them. Um, and for you know, back then that was a victory for some women. Yeah. And so, but but the um, even though Henry Tilney's a perfect, he can be kind of patronising. Yeah, he, he can does. be a bit of a dick at times. We've said this. He is a bit of a dick, yeah. But at the same time, his love for gothic novels kind of allows you to think that maybe he and Catherine can come to a, a really good understanding about why Catherine thinks the way that she does. Mm. And yeah, so that's that's kind of my first recommendation. Yeah, you can never go wrong with a Jane Austen. And if you're cold, no. and if it's wintry outside, and the leaves are brown, and your boots are tapping along the pavement, I think Northanger Abbey is the one to pick. My next recommendation, again, a book that I read this year. So, you know, just making you note that all the books that I'm recommending are from this year. Um, and this one is maybe slightly controversial in terms of comfort reads because it deals with quite a hard hitting topic. But do allow me to explain. I promise you there is a point to this. So this is Crying in H Mart by is the lead in a band called Japanese Breakfast. This is a memoir about her and it's not about her becoming a musician yes it very much factors into that but this is actually more about losing her mother to cancer and how that is actually a bigger exploration of her disconnection to her Korean heritage because they moved from Korea to the west and as time went on she feels like she lost that part of her Korean heritage um and the only way she feels connected to her Korean heritage is through this shop called H Mart where they sell Korean food. And it started off from a piece, I think, in the New York Times. It was like an essay of how she never cried for her mother at all until she went to H Mart to buy some Korean food and she broke down in tears. And I know I'm not saying this is a comfort read. I imagine it sounds very grim and very upsetting. But this is such a beautiful love letter to not only the mother-daughter relationship, um, but also the idea of how food is such an intimate thing, of how even if you can't speak or vocalise how you feel about something, cooking a meal from scratch, cooking it with someone, is probably the most intimate thing you can do with a person. And that despite the strained relationship of Michelle's mum and herself, because there's this just tension between them. You know, Michelle wants to go and rebel and be a teenager and be a teenager specifically in America and going against very much what the mother believes from a Korean culture. I thought that was really, really interesting and really fascinating. Zaun is such a natural storyteller and like I said before her becoming a musician and becoming Japanese breakfast is mentioned but very fleetingly because she knows that that's not the story I'm telling here this is the story of my mother and this is the story of my Korean heritage um because I just I, that idea I don't know it really struck me and it made me hungry as well <laughs> because it, she actually lists so many recipes for different food that she remembers. So this particular meal reminds her of when she did this with her mother or when they went to her auntie's with this. 
And it's, of course, very sad and very upsetting because it does lead to an inevitable conclusion. But the imagery of the food and of mother and daughter cooking together, despite all their fallings out and reconciling at the end, it's all done with food. Like, she brings food to the hospital where her mum's staying and they don't say anything, but they just sit and eat together. And I think that's probably more intimate and more touching than anything they could have ever, ever said. It's that idea of Zauna struggling with grief. And when she actually taps back into her Korean heritage, that process can begin and she can begin that closure. And I'm realising that this sounds like such a grim, depressing read, but I promise you there are moments when it is like that. But you do come away from it feeling really uplifted and also inspired um, and also really hungry as well. If you do ever <laughs> want to cook some fantastic Korean dishes, there are some lovely recipes in there. But also there's moments of the idea of America and how idyllic it is to, you know, come into America to achieve something. And when it doesn't happen, where do yeah. you go from there? Um, which, again, I think is such a big vital idea that's been explored in so many different books and different forms of media and how that sort of impacts you as a person um, and your identity, especially being mixed race. Something that I can definitely relate with, not yeah. in America, but just when you're in a culture that's presented one way and you've got a different culture telling you you should do something that's very different. But it's not too heavy either. It's kind of peppered in, to use a food analogy, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's say, nice. But it always goes back to the food. And for me, that's why I associate this with a comfort read. Um, and maybe it might not be for yourself if you're dealing with a, a loved one or going through the grieving process, which I completely appreciate. But if you do find yourself picking a book that you need to get back into, I would very much strongly recommend this. Um, it's very much a memoir. It's a food story, but it's also a love story between mother and daughter and the complexities and the nuances around that. So yeah, it's again, a bit controversial from the angle of a comfort read, um, but I just, I loved it. I really, really did. No, I, I think that that's, it's beautiful. And I think the way you describe it, you can kind of, you can tell the, the beauty that's in it because ultimately, you know, death is painful and difficult and feels like an ending and a finality. But at the same time, if there is death, it means that there has been a life of some description and that life is always worthy of celebration and reflection and appreciation um you know no matter what difficulties lay in it and so i i do think that and, and i think the way that you you emphasize the food is important because as you said you know food is a site of of bringing people together and of celebration and also reconciliation in every single culture um and the amount of kind of messing with ideas around food that we have especially in kind of our own Western kind of very diet heavy culture means that we've kind of lost a lot of what food means to people. And so to be able to, and, and, and similarly with, um, with the idea of the, the Westernization of people who come over here, um, who then become kind of distant and separated from food that comes from their own cultures, you know, a, a book that is almost entirely about just enjoying the food of where you come from with a person who comes from the same place and is, you know, related to you. I, I think that's a really, really beautiful thing. And I, I definitely think that that is a, a a topic that I can see bringing a lot of comfort to people. I think especially if you're grieving. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly it. And just to 
finish off with a quick point you said there about you know westernized ideas of food and dieting and stuff there's a bit in the book where um michelle's mum says something like you know food is meant to be enjoyed i don't understand when people gorge themselves and they feel sick like that's we you don't do that you eat to enjoy it what's yeah. the point of eating if you feel sick and yeah. I, you know messages when people just eat so much and they're like, oh i feel sick but oh, i'm gonna carry on because it's so nice it's like you're ruining what is almost like a sacred thing food yeah. should be enjoyed and you should be tasting everything and discovering everything and if you're doing it because you're you know it's almost becoming an action rather than uh something to be fulfilled i, I don't know it just it was quite interesting because i was like yeah the amount of times we've gone for a meal and you still eat even though you're you're, you're stuffed yeah. you're not enjoying it anymore i thought that was quite interesting yeah definitely and the the kind of idea that i think from uh, I, I think for, from our perspective and our culture is to eat not enough but also to eat too much both kind of forms of self-harm yes and the the idea of you know as as you said there you know the idea that there is there's an element that is just enough and it's a an act of self-love to eat kind of to have that kind of happy medium where you know you're satisfied and what you've eaten is delicious but you haven't either deprived yourself or gorged yourself both in the name of kind of harming your body yes. either like like at either end of the spectrum yeah, yeah. cool Lovely. i really want kimchi now <laughs> oh yeah oh, god kimchi um, yeah, I've actually got a proof of crying in H Mart knocking around, and now I'm really, really tempted to just to just pick it up. Do it, okay? <laughs> shameless, shameless picador shilling here from you. Shame on you, shame. Where's my shame bell? <laughs> no, don't bring that. I've got my headphones in. what I would consider the ultimate female buildings roman. Go on. Which is uh, The Magic Toy Shop by Angela Carter, which is one of my favourite books of all time. And I would say the quintessential kind of slightly unsettling, yes. slightly creepy, but ultimately very um, wintry comfort read. And The Magic Toy Shop is essentially the story of Melanie, who's 15, who lived a kind of um, good end of normal upbringing with her parents in a sort of rural uh, rural countryside, and then they die. And at 15, she is sent to live with her aunt and uncle who live above a toy shop that they own. Um, and she basically goes from this um, flourishing young woman who is in the, on this kind of almost brink of her own sexual awakening to suddenly being under the thumb of this like tyrannical uncle who's incredibly puritanical very patriarchal mm. treats everybody around him like like they're the toys that he owns you know like they're his property um and it's the story of her almost the story of her fantasies about what her life should be being mm. broken down but through that act of being broken down she is able to find a source of power um that's grounded in reality so I think one of the most interesting things for me about this novel is the start of it. So I might actually just read the very first passage from it. Yes, before you please do, it. please do. Okay, so I'm going to just read out, this is the very first uh, paragraph. Um, the summer she was 15, Melanie discovered she was made of flesh and blood. Oh, my America, my newfound land. 
She embarked on a tranced voyage, exploring the whole of herself, clambering her own mountain ranges, penetrating the moist richnesses of her secret valleys, the physiological Cortez, da Gama or Bongo Park. For hours she stared at herself naked in the mirror of her wardrobe. She would follow with her finger the elegant structure of her ribcage, where the heart fluttered under the flesh like a bird under a blanket. She would draw down the long line from the breastbone to navel, which was a mysterious cavern or grotto. She would rasp the palms against her butt-wing shoulder blades. Then she would writhe about, clasping herself, laughing, sometimes doing cartwheels and handstands, out of sheer exhilaration at the supple surprise of herself. Now she was no longer a little girl. And I think, for me, that is such a strange, unusual, but also perfect way to start a book. It's literally... Mm a girl a teenage girl learning that she's growing and essentially what it's describing there is like kind of masturbation yeah. but also but also self-admiration self-exploration mm. liberation through owning your own body and that passage kind of goes on to explain how she kind of conjures this these kind of um uh mental bridegrooms these mental kind of sexual partners that she fantasizes with and this is a teenage girl who is, you know, gr- gr- growing up. And I think the fact that it opens with a teenage girl flourishing in herself, um, who is then forced into a a scenario where the, she, she's then very kind of repressed, and where these, um, where she suddenly becomes the object of like a patriarchal gaze yeah. through her uncle and through other men who who work at the toy shop, um, I think is this beautiful sort of extended metaphor for you know the realities of growing up as a woman you know oh, yeah. you become you become aware of yourself and if you're if you're not aware of yourself as a sexual object you become kind of delighted by yourself but then all of a sudden you're a site of threat and you're a site of being looked at and yeah. everything changes all of a sudden because of the introduction of the idea that men are looking at you and what does that mean that men are looking at you what does it mean about you and what does it mean about like what you are for mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's uh, and the whole story is kind of, kind of follows that trajectory. It follows the trajectory of a young woman, whose kind of coming of age is sort of stifled, and through that she has to, kind of try and break through that kind of horrible membrane of patriarchal bleh, yeah. um, to find some level of power. But it's also, funnily enough, it, it it's a coming of age story, but it's sort of a story of disappointment because ultimately the beautiful things that she's been fantasizing about won't ever come to pass because she fantasizes something that's better than reality mm. um and without wanting to spoil it the kind of the, the way that it ends and the sort of the reality that she understands will be her actual life <laughs> falls far short of what she had imagined as a teenager um and it is just one of the most beautiful books i've ever read i actually i went to refresh because i couldn't remember the protagonist's name um, so i went to goodreads to kind of try and refresh kind of my memory of what had happened because I read this years and years and years ago and um I was surprised by how many like two star reviews it had it had so many people saying really it was, yeah it was one of these weird things where it was like people were like it was weird it was definitely not for me it was um it was gross or people being like angry about the fact that there was a young lady it opens with a young woman basically learning about herself but do they not mm, the problem I think is maybe if you've read any Angela Carter you yeah. you kind of roughly know what you're going to be getting yourself into. Yeah. Um, and do you think maybe these people haven't, or it, it might be the first because the Magic Toy Shop is quite an iconic book from Angela Carter. Um, yeah. 
and maybe do you think people are being introduced to this as their first Angela Carter and haven't maybe studied her at school or just have no um, exposure to her. So it's almost like a, oh, I don't like this. This is unusual because they've not had that maybe deep critical thinking that a lot of us have had with Carter, maybe studying from school or higher education. Yeah, what what, what do mean- you think? I'm not sure, because to be honest, it was also my first Angela Carter, so... Interesting. And, and it didn't faze me, but I have quite a strong stomach for stuff, so I, I don't... Because there's nothing, for the sake of the listener, there's nothing like massively taboo or hideous in here, but there is a lot of unsettling moments, mm-hmm. um, that, and it is written in a very, very Baroque, um, flourishing style. And But to be honest, that's that's really what I like about it. It has this kind of almost tangible kind of deliciousness you know it's it's like it's like this gluttonous little feast of turkish delight and and chocolate and you can kind yeah. of you want to put your fingers in it and it's all sticky um and that's kind of that that is her writing style it's very rich and luscious there's a lot of description um but she's always just... been like that though like yeah Carter's got that wickedness in the slightly like you say the unsettled nature the gluttonous rich yeah nature of that writing so and that sucks me in yeah I, I mean i guess it's just not for some people but yeah it just surprised me to be fair it made me feel good because i was like well maybe I like it's it. yeah m- m- maybe it's okay that i don't like sally rooney that much you know we can all we can all just enjoy different things that's fine maybe i'm not wrong maybe yeah. m- maybe there is no right answer but anyway yeah it's um it's just gorgeous and the symbolism as well is beautiful there's this moment where the uncle creates this big swan and he wants Melanie to act in a play with this swan. Um, and if you know anything about if you know anything about the Greek gods, you know what happens when Zeus turns himself into a swan. And so it is this kind of um, moment of sexual violence in which actually nothing happens. Um, and, and it just, it's such a great illustration, this kind of woven tapestry showing how a lot of the time the ways in which um, you know, patriarchal forces yes. enact themselves on women and women's bodies, and to a degree men's bodies, aren't, aren't moments of violence and aren't active moments of aggression. They're often things that happen out of expectation and out of an understanding of how narratives work. And yeah, I just, I just love it. I, I think if you want a kind of dark, slightly grim-esque fairy tale that's incredibly feminist without being annoying. You know, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's just annoying. Sometimes it's yeah. like, yeah, I get it. Thank you. A bit thank on you the s- nose. Th- thank you for saving the frail, frail women. We're all so appreciative. <laughs> thank you very um, much. On you go. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolutely glorious one. And in my notes, for some reason at the end, I wrote trickster writing. And I don't really know why I wrote that. I'm um, sure. But, <laughs> yeah. Why just, not? I, I think I think I was thinking of the fact that it's got this Hall of Mirrors, strange, dark fairy tale vibe throughout. You always feel like you're on the edge of something supernatural, but actually it's an entirely realism book. Um, Interesting. So she kind of sucks you into the idea that there is enchantment and magic woven through the mundane without ever actually introducing any supernatural elements. And yeah, it's just it's just beautiful, guys. It's beautifully written. Angela Carter is lovely. You know, th- there's a reason why there are so many Angela Carter kind of lookalike writing styles out there yes. now. Why there are so why that boom of fair, dark fairy tale retellings is so powerful because all of these young women writing today, for the most part, 
have had some exposure to Angela Carter and how much power those stories have when they're taken and they're kind of reworked to um, to kind of explore femininity and, and the power of, you know, being a woman in a society that's kind of gross to them. Um, so yeah, would highly recommend. Beautifully written, very powerful storytelling. Gorgeous. 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 It's funny that you kind of ended that review of that wonderful book by sort of leaning into the supernatural, the slightly creepy, because the third and final recommendation I'm going to give is very much a spooky, horrible, grotesque book that would have been great for Halloween. So it's not like this is a comfort read, really. This is just more of a bloody hell. Like, it's a lot, but it's so dark and twisted and so much fun at the same time. And it's a book called Tell Me I'm Worthless by Alison Rumfit, which has been all over my uh, social media. And I know that I've given a copy to you, Isabel, to read. Yes, thank you. My birthday present. <laughs> yes. So this is a book about um, a group of friends. We start with Alice, who is a trans woman. And we start from her perspective. And we found out that years ago, her, her friend Isla and Hannah all went into this house. And something happened and Hannah never came out of the house her and Iris left went into that house with her they left together but Hannah never came out and from there we tap into a very dark twisted story of violence uh, transphobic abuse mental abuse but again it reminded me a lot of those early books of Angela Carter or Karen and Duffy where everything's subverted and dark and twisted. This is very much a gothic haunted house story, but at its core, it's a massive mirror to the Britain that we are living in now. (laughs) Um, Of how we are in a country that has leaned so far over to the fascist right that it's quite horrifying. Um, and it's a book that I can't give too much away because you very much have to experience it itself and that's the word I want to really reiterate here it's an experience reading this book and there are some very stomach churning moments and genuinely scary moments I find with books, especially books billed as horror I'm like, "Mm, am I going to be scared though? often it's like, oh that's good that I can appreciate it's very good (laughs) scary writing but I'm not actually scared this genuinely scared me at points um both from the haunted house nature but also the horror of the country that we're living in now and again it's not too on the nose for some it might be um the very first thing i thought of was if you liked eliza clark's boy parts you'll love this if you hated (laughs) eliza clark's boy parts you'll hate this that that's very much where my mind went I mean, to the point where it's not really a spoiler because you see it in the chapters, but the house itself is given the name Albion. Oh, obviously, yeah. Um, Yes, which is very telling because, and again, I could really be reiterating this and paraphrasing history, but I believe that's what Britain was formerly known as. Yeah, Albion is the old, old, old word for England, yeah. Yeah, um... And in my review, I just said, needless to say, there's trigger warnings all around this because it's brutal, it's horrifying and genuinely frightening. And what's more frightening is that Isla um, is a 
I can't remember. She's a minority group, um, but she joins a, a gender critical group. Oh no! Um, and it's interesting because she hates the idea that she was attracted to Alice, who is a trans woman, and she hates that part of herself. And she falls down really horrific tropes and. She ends up getting attacked by um, an older cis woman. Um, and when she rejects her, the said woman goes onto Twitter and says it was the other way around. And then what happens, it becomes like a witch hunt against Isla yeah. uh, on Twitter, which, as we all know, is a massive cesspit. Um, and again, that's kind of the, the nuanced moments of the horror isn't just the obvious dark trees, spooky house. It's just the nature of the world that we live in, especially towards minority groups, like specifically trans people and the horror that they're having to go through on a day-by-day basis just for wanting the right to exist. And I loved this because it was a horror story on so many different levels. Like, yes, it's that gruesome haunted house story that we know and love for Halloween and spooky times, but then the real horror is just this country. Because it is a bit of a shit show, to be honest. (laughs) Like the emergence of fascism, racism, transphobia. Um, it's like Alison Rumpet grabs us by the throat and says, look at the mer- look at this country, look at what we've done to it. Look at the state of yourself. Ba- Don't, ba- please. Yeah, basically, that's exactly what it is. Um, it's so, and especially the relationship between Alice and Isla, because they very much clearly care for each other and have had a romantic and sexual relationship in the past. And now they're just at a critical point where it's so complicated and messy and they both have very different ideas of what they what happened to Hannah which I won't spoil here um but there's a point where the narrative literally splits into two so there's two running narratives on each page for about 20 pages so you have to read one and then you go back and read the other oh wow that's amazing it's the same event but told differently that that they run side by side it reminds me of those books you used to read when you were younger like the choose your own adventure books yeah it's kind of like that like which story do you want to read first which story do you believe um but it's so brilliant and i appreciate that it won't be for everyone because of how gruesome and how grotesque and messy it is like she holds no punches at all with this book and i think some people just won't have the stomach for it. Like, again, I said with Eliza Clark and Boy Parts, because we both loved that book. Yeah. But we also could appreciate that it's not going to be for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I see. I, I just want to say I'm absolutely fascinated by what you said about the idea that Isla turns... Is it Alice, the other character? Alice is the main character. Alice, yeah, the yeah. Trans, the, yeah, trans woman. Yeah, yeah. The, the Isla, who is of a different, like, minority group kind of turns against Alice and I think it's a really interesting obviously I haven't read it again you gave it to me I will read it soon yeah um, hint, the, hint. the the ways in which I think places like Twitter and the kind of organized misinformation and the organized um kind of toxic toxification of online spaces may, means that often you do get people who should be allies in the basic fight for like justice for everybody please um yeah, you often yeah. find them turned against one another and i find that really interesting and, and a useful thing to kind of discuss because i think often in in books and in the way that we kind of present our discussions in online spaces it's kind of like 
yeah, yeah, white men against everyone else, when the reality is actually much more complicated than that. And it's, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we pretend that it's, you know, that the one bad group is bad. And if we can push them away, everybody else will like live in like halcyon joy and, and, and delight together. It's like, it's like no, it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and often it's the people who feel threatened um, because of their own kind of marginalization and their own kind of experiences of oppression that can actually be quite vicious towards other people, you know, which, which explains a lot of like quite turfy behavior sometimes. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you're so right on the money there with Isla being a minority group it's actually she feels threatened because there's another group you know that demands rights and where there should be an intersectionality it's actually a threat yeah um and i just think it's so fascinating um and i appreciate it It is not going to be for everyone listening to this podcast but if you think you can stomach it and you really want to see the state of this country written in a gruesome horrible haunted house story then this is the book for you not very much a comfort read but a book that we can serve as a belated halloween read i guess yeah an incredibly important one as well so now you have to read it isabel sorry oh god it's only so much time i'm already trying to get through to paradise um which is a thousand pages long it's fine we're getting there (sighs) she thick she thick Speaking of thick, uh, my last book that I'm going to recommend is a high fantasy book, and it is um, The Ship of Magic by Robin Hobb, which is the first in the Live Ship Traders trilogy. If you have not heard of Robin Hobb, her main kind of fantasy stick is a kind of series of series, a series of interconnected yeah. um, trilogies and extended trilogies. Um, that take place in what she calls the realm of the elderlings which is this big sprawling world full of different places um but ship of magic is set slightly apart from what i would consider the main kind of trajectory of of her books and it focuses on this small um kind of port town community um called the bingtown traders and it's a kind of up-and-coming flourishing town of merchants um and it focuses on a specific family called the Vestrits. And the Vestrits have in their possession what is known as a live ship, which is a ship made of a special kind of magical wood. And I think it's when three generations of captains from the same family die aboard the ship, the ship will quicken and come to life. And it will have its own mind, it will have its own memories, it will essentially become the ultimate crew member. Um, And of course, there's a lot of positives to having a live ship they're very very rare they're very expensive yeah having one obviously means that the ship can navigate through more difficult waters which means that you can trade more far far and wide you're at less risk of pirates because you know what your the live ship can react it by itself to kind of steer you away from danger things like that and so we follow the vestrit family as they kind of prepare for their ship to quicken because the kind of um the older father of the vestrit family is about to die and that sounds i don't know if that sounds very pleasant i don't know if that sounds like something exciting that people definitely want to read um but it follows the fortunes of all of the different members of the vestrit family um who start out being very close and very excited for what's about to happen and slowly 
through these big differences in opinion about what the live ship should be used for and uh, what it is ethical to do to a live ship begin yep. to splinter and they're, they're previously quite close, you know, not always rosy, but close relationships begin to fracture. Um, so for example, you have Althea, who is the daughter of the man who's about to die and she dreams of, uh, you know, she's been aboard the ship since she was a child. She dreams of being the captain. Um, but the, uh, the I think it's the her brother-in-law, who's the husband of her older sister, says instead he should be the captain but what he wants to do is start using the live ship for the slave trade because it's very very lucrative yeah quite that's the sound i made because it's very lucrative it's the new big thing trafficking people um however what he kind of doesn't really appreciate and what althea knows is that the psychological state of a live ship is quite fragile yeah and you know not only is you know slavery wrong but also having awful things happening aboard your live ship can psychologically damage it and can cause terrible things to happen um so for example somewhere on an abandoned beach we get scenes of somebody going and visiting another live ship who went mad because of everything that happened aboard his ship and just capsized in the middle of the ocean and drowned his entire crew. Oh. So, yeah, so so there is this kind of squabbling infighting among all of the Vestrits and what they want to do. And at the same time, we get a pirate who has decided that actually what he wants to do is steal this live ship. And so you have all of these chapters from different points of view. Then you have this guy who is coming from a very far away place with designs on obtaining a live ship and essentially stealing it for himself and at the same time when you all have all of these silly human squabbles going on you're getting strange chapters that don't really make any sense that are from the point of view of these huge underground sea creatures who don't really remember who they are or what they are they're kind of going on instinct traveling somewhere because they know that something very important is about to happen to them yeah and it's all of these things converging and it's just it's such a good book like if you don't really know very much about fantasy or you're a beginner in getting into high fantasy i think ship of magic is one of the best places you can possibly start because the magic system is very simple you don't really have to think too much about it sometimes ships sometimes ships come to life what do you want there's magic wood (laughs) you know you don't have to understand you know complicated spells or anything like that And it's much more about the relationships between the human beings and them sort of tussling over like what is ethical and also what is lucrative because the reality is they have to survive, you know, they need to make money. But what can they stomach doing for themselves, for the good of humanity, for, you know, for for the, the psychological state of their live ship. And so it's a lot about family and it's about, um, it's about deciding who your family are, you know, and, and the extent to which you have to go to keep a family together. Um, there are so many different characters and as the the world expands over the, because it's a trilogy, and as the world expands over slowly and slowly, it opens up and it opens up and it opens up and you get more and more characters come in, more and more complicated issues start to be kind of tangled up and everything. And it just creates such a good, exciting, interesting book. Like it is, let me check how many pages this is. It is 800, 880 pages, Ooh. and I, and I was not bored for a single second because she is, 
She's so good at making you really care about every single one of these characters, even characters you don't agree with, even characters you think are being complete pricks. They're still you compelling. Yeah, you understand what they're compelling and you understand why they want to do the things they do. You know, mm. the, the character who wants to start, you know, using the live ship as a slave ship is obviously wrong and obviously a piece of shit. But when you get to know what he's dealing with and the fact that he needs to look out for his daughter and he has to look yes. out for his, you know, all he wants is to make sure that his own family are kept safe. Yeah. And so it's a really good explana- exploration of kind of the complicated ethics that come from having power and it's not straightforward it's not like no, they're not good they're evil that's yeah. it it's that yeah. nuanced complexity it is. of it's... people because people are yeah. complex yeah exactly it's not the sort of slightly maybe Tolkien-esque thing of here's your band of heroes yeah. and here are your bad guys and they meet and there's a clash and they fight it's not like that at all it's a much more complicated interweaving of different motivations and kind of philosophies um, that are as people are trying to basically tussle in trying to make their way in the world as best they can. So yeah, an absolutely gorgeous, a really really beautifully written as well. Not in a very poetic way, but in a way that just makes it really easy to read and read and read. She's got such a gift for her craft, just creating a big sprawling world that you can just be carried along in. Yeah. And I love I love a big fantasy for like this time of year when. You know, you have these long evenings, they're very dark, and you just need something, somewhere else to be, basically. You know, not unlike still life. You know, what I want to do is be on a ship that's talking to me. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's basically us in a nutshell. I want to yeah. be in a cafe in Florence drinking coffee with a parrot <laughs> on my shoulder, and you want to be on a magic ship with a parrot on your shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> or potentially in a magical toy shop, try running away from a wooden swan. I don't know. <laughs> That yeah, was so, last week, wasn't it? Oh yeah, well, well, I had two days off last week. I had the time for it. And that's why you're banned <laughs> from Oxford Circus. Well, well, they should have been more accepting of what I wanted to do. Anyway, so yeah, that's my that's my last recommendation. Um, if you're considering maybe getting into a bit of fantasy, but you're not sure where to start, and you you don't like the idea of kind of cavalier knights and no. you know the, a very kind of what you might call a very Eurocentric slightly male-centric version of what fantasy looks like. I would yeah. highly recommend Robin Hobb and the Live Ship Traders trilogy is a great place to start. And I do like those big sprawling epics where they're quite big, but you're never bored. I think that's yeah. such a testament to a good writer. And Absolutely. Fantastic imagination as well to really capture your attention for that long. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, as you know, I'm not the biggest sci-fi fantasy reader but the way you talk about these books is so compelling and i'm never bored i'm really immersed and i think oh my god if they're that good just by description how amazing must they be to read um but for me it's always been like that, just starting it i think i always yeah. tend to put it off and i'll go into something else but i yeah. know that if i did actually start and make an effort I would be enthralled by it because the way you describe it is just amazing. It, it is one of those things where I think fantasy is either either you grew up reading a lot of magical stuff and so it's a kind of natural progression or you maybe didn't or at some point you stopped reading magical stuff because you associated it with children's books and so there is this kind of mental gap. Mm. Um, but for me, like there are plenty of crap fantasy books. There are a lot of fantasy books that are much more about exploring human ideas in yeah. a slightly different 
way. So like the Terry Pratchett Discworld novels, for example, I will always recommend to anybody because they're not even really about magic. They're much more about how different kinds of people are trying to muddle along and like look after one another and do right by one another in this big kind of sprawling fantasy world that is trying to industrialize. Um, so yeah, that, that would be another starting point that I would really recommend. But yeah, no, fa- fantasy is great, but it, it is, it's all, because, I think because they're so big and they're such big series, I think often it can be kind of intimidating to kind of yes. take that first step. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, um, you've probably heard the news of the Pratchett books or they're being redone for audio. I'm fucking thrilled. I cannot tell you how excited I am. So when I was kind of putting together my little list of, because we, we agreed that we were going to do three each, and I was stood holding Ship of Magic and going, oh, but a Terry Pratchett book, surely. I did because, think this, this. I was surprised there was no Terry Pratchett. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm just going to cheat now and I'm going to give you a fourth one. Uh, the other series that I would really recommend getting into if you want to enter into... Um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld with minimum effort is the Tiffany Aching series, which is basically his children's series about a little girl whose brother gets kidnapped by the Queen of the Fairies. And armed with a frying pan, she enters into Fairy World and tries to rescue him. Um, And along the way, she sort of learns that she's a witch. And when she gets back, she's sort of taken into the community of witches who... Um, they they essentially are like wise women, you know. They're not these big flashy spellcasters. They go round villages and they look after people, um, and that is just oh, it's so heartwarming and beautiful. And Tiffany's such a good character. I always think that um, Terry Pratchett is the only man who I think has my full permission to write teenage girls. Yes, he's dead now. Unfortunately, yes. he 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 will write no more. But uh, I remember you I, said this. Um, yeah, because we've spoken of Pratchett before, and I remember hmm. you were saying like he just gets it like he writes yeah. teenage girls so so well and yeah. when like some people were trying to like slander him for whatever reason it was you were like no yeah no we don't yeah. we, we don't go down that road <laughs> yeah some people were saying that he would like be transphobic and i was like like have you read have you read these books do you know about the dwarves and like dwarves are all culturally ma- male and then eventually some as you know as progress happens some dwarves come out as women and it's like a whole thing about how some people don't accept them, but the, but but you know they deserve to be whoever they are. I just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just absolutely no, no, thank you for anybody who didn't know what that sound was. That was me rolling my chair away um, in disgust. So yeah, um, Terry Pratchett is just a wonderful, very very compassionate, beautiful fantasy writer who I highly recommend. Anyway, that's 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 neither here nor there, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you want to add another one? Have you got a fourth one? Well, um, oh god, oh, put me on the pressure now. Well, no pressure. I don't want to beat the same old drum that everyone's read, but I did read the new Richard Osman book recently, and as as everyone in the country, because it's like the number one best-selling book ever, um, and it was cute. Like, and that I think would definitely be categorised as a comfy read because it's cozy yeah. crime and it's a bunch bunch of OAPs solving murders but it was funny we love to see it it's got a charm to it and it's very British um but I just think how is it still number one especially the first one in paperback it's still number one and like everyone in the country surely must have a copy who is buying hoopst hoopst is buying this book (laughs) there you go there's your fourth one thank you thank you there we go Good. Now I don't look like I'm just like massively hogging the uh, the spotlight to beat my Terry Pratchett drum. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening to the audiobooks now, the old audiobooks, 
um, and they're so good. I'm going through the Tiffany Aching series, but I realised um, as I was trying to go back that a lot of them have been, or a lot of the audiobooks were recorded a long time ago, and they are borderline unlistenable. They are of such bad quality. I remember you saying this. It yeah. sounded like someone literally fell down the same well that you're normally in when we record these podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> since, since, since I got a, a better microphone, things are hopefully better. But yeah, honestly, it's like somebody fell down a well and is trying to use a yogurt pot as like a... Uh, a, a microphone and are these it's, just from online then or they're, no they're just they're audible but they were recorded so long ago that they're just terrible um oh, that's which is so a shame good that they're being remade re-recorded then. yeah it's 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 great and it makes me really happy because there are a lot of books that i haven't read specifically because i like listening to the audiobooks so hopefully we will now be able to uh, to enjoy the full range of everything Huzzah! Huzzah! And on that note, I think we need to reconvene soon for a Christmas special because I can hear the bells ringing. Oh no, oh no, the jingle! The Ah, jingle! The jingle! much for listening to this episode of back to the books with me isabel flynn and my co-host kieran sanger we will be back with a christmas special uh, favorite books books we're looking forward to reading all that good lovely stuff thank you very much for listening and we'll hopefully hear you again soon never mind bye <laughs> bye you tried you really tried <laughs>